I had a reason why I gave the instructions tonight in the way that I did. Maybe none of you noticed, but I, rather than emphasizing putting, putting the mind in the body, the body in the mind, and sinking into the felt experience of sitting and feeling the movements of our body breath, and how that's what we often do here, and it's a wonderful anchor since, since our body is always present, and I really enjoy practicing that way. It's, I've done much of my practice, but tonight I offered rather to, to sense or recognize your mind, the nature of your mind, the nature of awareness itself, to be like a clear, empty sky, just to notice that your mind in some way, if you really look at what we call mind, there's really nothing there called mind. But yet we can see that there is this quality of consciousness. And so you could say that the mind is, is clear, it's empty, not made of anything, shining, containing all experiences. And so we sit quietly, and, and I recommended that you unfurl your mind and just let everything just rest in that openness. And see, it's, it's invisible, yet everything is known. You hear sounds. You smell smells, you feel sensations, you feel the breath, you notice thoughts, everything coming and going. And this, you could say, is the, the very nature of the mind already. The one who, the, mind, the very awareness through which you are perceiving, through which each of us is perceiving right now, is inherently pure, empty, and free. You are, by nature, free. And that some people would say that, that joy is our natural state. And, and I, I don't always use that word joy, but, but there, is, there is with that natural openness. When we're in touch with that natural openness, there is a, often a residue, a fragrance of peace, of contentment, of... Sometimes joy, sometimes just the joy of being non-reactive, uh, a kind of confidence, a kind of faith, a, a sense of well-being that begins to, you begin to get the fragrance of that. Well, that doesn't come from, that fragrance does not come from creating anything. It, be, it comes from realizing what's always here. And you could say that the whole trajectory of our practice is moving out of the, uh, out of the, uh, for some reason the word maniacal, moving out of the maniacal vortex of our self-preoccupations, our internal dialogue, our obsession with, uh, with being somebody, becoming someone, getting somewhere, getting something, getting rid of something, fixing, healing, curing, whatever it is, coming out of that tangle, as one teacher put it, coming out, or one poet put it, coming out of the tangle of fear thinking, living in silence, and roomies, as in flowing down and down, in ever-widening rings of being. So the idea of our practice, or the the trajectory of our practice is from this narrow world 
where we are in some ways serving a maniacal master called our mind that's always going crazy. Very innocently, it's been conditioned that way. But nevertheless, our mind is a madhouse. As I think uh, this was, I think I brought this along with me tonight. The wonderful words of, of Bhante Gunaratna. Don't you know what I'm looking for? I can't find it. He says, somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It has always been this way and you never noticed. The noticing that profound but subtle shift from being the servant of this madhouse, barreling down the hill, out of control and hopeless, from being a servant to that, to being the master of that, actually being knowing that your consciousness is untouched by whatever visits it. It is beyond that. It's bigger, you could say. It is... It is um, it is as wide as the ocean, as big as the sky, as transparent and, and immovable as the, as the sky. And when we begin to realize that, then the very same, the very same, what the Buddha called defilements or kilesas, torments of the mind, become the, the cause of our liberation, our freedom, and become the cause of compassion. And they become then dedicated. They are then used on behalf of liberation rather than used on behalf of that devotion to this imaginary being in, that plays in that maniacal version of myself, in that maniacal mind, rather than being a slave to that distorted perception of reality, to the, um, the mistaken, uh, the misplaced faith in what what kind of well-being I can have by waiting for things, by hoping, by expecting, instead of that, finding a place of relief right in the midst of even the, the tormented mind as it's, as it's showing its changing, empty nature, actually seeing for ourselves that everything that we tell ourselves about ourselves is an empty bubble. It has no substantiality. It is just a dream. It's a phantom. It's a bubble. Whatever it is that you think about yourself, it's wrong. How's that? <laughs> Evidenced by the fact that, as I do every week, I invite you to see what, what, what is your experience after the last idea of yourself and, and before the next one. When you are simply empty and open. Not, not consulting that, um, that conditioning of, of your thoughts and views about yourself or the world or anyone else. What, what is your experience? What do we taste? You see that right in the midst of all, right in the midst of it all, there is dare I say peace, ease, freedom, 
or sensation or sound or some just simple sense experience. Very uncomplicated though. But what about the world of that madhouse? Is that simple too? Or is that a, it's a, or is that a mass of complication, confusion? So if the inherent nature of our inherent nature is joy or peace, then if we're not, and this is not to, to suggest that you're doing something wrong, it's not about you, it's just about either the presence or the absence of, of clarity or ignorance. But if we're not experiencing this peace and contentment, it means in some way we have fallen into, and we all have, innocently, but we've fallen into uh, a state of some kind of confusion or delusion. And the Buddha spoke very clearly about it. He said, basically, he didn't start with the inherent nature of your mind is pure, even though one of his most famous passages is, luminous is the mind, brightly shining. And it is uh, colored by all these defilements that visit and in the first half of that famous passage, he says, this the unlearned person doesn't understand, so they, they don't cultivate their mind. They just get lost in, what vis- in the defilements that visit. And then he goes on to say, luminous is the mind, brightly shining, and it is untouched by all these defilements that visit it. Does this make sense? Thus the yogi understands, therefore there's cultivation of the mind. The yogi cultivates that shift from being the servant of this mind to being the master, from making that shift from being bound, lost, believing you are that one that you're imagining yourself to be, to noticing, ah, that's a thought of myself. A thought of myself is not myself. That is a feeling of, of shame, of, of grief, of, of fear. That is a feeling. That's not me. That's not mine. That is a changing weather condition. Luminous is the mind, brightly shining, and it is colored by all these different visitors, but it is not touched by them. This the yogi understands. So that's the, the Buddha did speak of that later on, but what he started with is we are all, we've all fallen into a state of dukkha, a state of we are all by being born subject, by being born into this feeling of separateness, of of um, almost the feeling of individuality. Because we've been born, we experience the stress of, of being born, the stress of, of getting sick, the stress of getting old, if we're lucky enough, the stress of, of um, dying, the stress of not getting what we want, the stress of being separated from the everything, from what we love, the stress of change, the stress of of, of a mind that has greed, the stress of hatred, the stress of ignorance. There's stress everywhere. And what, what causes that, and this is important for us to see in order for us to make that shift, what causes it is that tendency to, um, to um, get carried away, get absorbed in, act out of, this view that things should be different than the way they are. That I want things to be different than the way they are. It expresses itself as wanting the desire for pleasure, the desire for more existence, the desire to become, 
the desire to stop, the desire to get rid of, that keeps us in a state of when we enter into that little narrow, crazy world that's based on past conditioning, when we enter into that, we suspend our, we suspend our recognition of freedom. We suspend our recognition of what's right here, right in the midst of it all. And we put ourselves into a state of postponement, a state of postponing until I can, until I can gratify whatever the desire is that I want. I was thinking of I've, I was thinking of something that I, well, I can't remember it now, but I, I got caught in a loop lately, and I could feel myself, my body getting tighter and tighter, kind of waiting for the, the uh, relief that I expected to come. At the, uh, I think it was something having to do with the, uh, with the getting to the weekend. Even a simple, the simple tendency to enter into the world in my mind of time, thinking that the weekend will make me happier than I am. And the weekend does make me happier than... <laughs> but, but it doesn't make me happier because it's the weekend. It makes me happier because I stop waiting for it. Because I, I come out of that, that little narrow vortex. So again, the trajectory of our practice is to move from the narrow gravitational field of what I want to happen to this wider gravitational field of the Dharma, which finds its seat, finds its freedom, right in the middle of it all. That, and how do we find it in the middle of it all? Through meeting everything with mindful attention, and in that process realizing that the very nature of, our, of the very freedom that all of us search for, the very relief, is literally a split second, a half breath away. It's never anywhere other than this very moment when we wake up to where we are. Just even, oh, this is waiting for the weekend. Even that feeling becomes, is then used on behalf of remembering my natural state, which is complete, enough, free, here, awake. So tonight, sitting with all of you, I was happy to be reminded of, of this natural wakefulness. And that's, to me, a lot of what coming together as a sangha is. It's, it's that association with what's actually true. Not what's true about... Of course, we talk about what's true about my tendencies or your tendencies, true about the mind, true about our life situation, true about the world but it really comes down to what really ignites our heart is that reconnection, that reclaiming our heritage, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, where he says, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around all week begging for a living. He doesn't say all week, I did. He says, stop being the destitute child. Come home, reclaim your heritage. So the Buddha, in that description of what keeps us in that state of suspended well-being, it says that, that desire for things to be different, that, that 84th problem, that, that view that if I have a problem, there's something wrong with me, that there's something, I should have been done with that. Any of you ever have that view? 
this shouldn't be happening anymore. I shouldn't even want th this thing anymore. I shouldn't get caught in waiting for this. Whatever it is, our mind tends to, we tend to fall into some version of wanting things to be different. And that's born of, of little reactions in the mind that harden into a kind of craving and attachment. In fact, I just, this afternoon, I don't, can't remember, I'd have to stop the tape in order to find it. I took a picture of a book in a window on Union Street, which is, Union Street is a, it's like, I don't know how to describe it, but it's, it is, it's really samsara. <laughs> it is, it, you could call it high-class samsara. But the name of the book was, and maybe some of you have purchased this book, it's called Crave. And it's the urban, the urban guide to, for girls or something. <laughs> the urban guide for all the things that you crave and you want to have. How did I get on that topic? <laughs> but the Buddha talked about this, these fleeting reactions of, of craving, wanting, hardening into, into attachment. And he said that there are four attachments that really keep us bound in that state of, of postponement. Of, I call it spiritual postponement. That state of being... being uh, in a, in a place of, of waiting or hoping. Those four attachments, he said, were attachment to, uh, to sense pleasures. That's the obvious one. That's the book Crave and everything. We talk about that every week. The second one he talked about was attachment to rites and rituals. How you're supposed to do things. What what is doing things right uh, and following some kind of inner rules of how you're, how you're supposed to do things and that if you don't do things right, you will not be, if you don't do things the way that our mind constructs, if you don't, in fact, in spiritual practice, if you don't light your incense properly, if you don't bow properly, if you sit with in the relaxed pose as opposed to half lotus that somehow you're, you're the gateway to liberation will be closed to you and we can become very attached to the form of our practice and how it should look and how our mind should be and all of that. And that morphs into or shades into the third great attachment that the Buddha spoke about. And this he called the attachment to, uh, to ditties. Ditti is a fun word. In, in, a ditty in, in English is, you know, a little, a little, a little um, phrase, a little, um, a little song. A ditti in Pali or Sanskrit, uh, ditti is translated as views and opinions. Views and opinions. That liking and disliking certain ideas, certain views of how things should be, how others should be, how I should be, these views, these, these simple preferences harden into attachment. 
And they harden into attachment because a lot of the way that we build, that our mind builds the house of me, what creates the sense of me, part of the structure of that house is the way I think things should be. My views and opinions about things. That's what makes me uniquely me in my imaginary version. And we can see that any house that ego builds, any identity that we have with, and when I say identity, that's the house. Whenever we have an identity with a view and opinion, let's say somebody does not agree with your view or opinion. What happens to that house? That house begins to show that its rafters are a little loose. That house needs to try harder and harder and harder to nail in every nail, and it's just like home improvement. In fact, it's endless. And we end up pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding, trying to secure that, um, that place called me. But what we have done is we've built a house on views which are um, flimsy, they're, they're, and they're easily shaken. And so we experience what the Buddha called dukkha. We feel this queasiness, this dissatisfaction, this sense of something's not quite right and something's not quite right with me. And as I say this, I think of the, the famous line from, in fact, the very song that the Buddha sang upon his awakening, on that, that moment after he realized that his his nature was not bound up in, in this uh, maniacal tendency to build, to build a self. He let out a song. He said, through many births, through this wandering on, and this birth, could say, entering into that world of, of the imagined me and my ideas, through many births in the wandering on, I ran, not uh, seeking, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house. I saw that it was just an empty bubble. It says dukkha is birth again and again in this, in this flimsy house. That's, I'm paraphrasing now, I'm translating. Dukkha is birth again and again. Oh house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build another house again. Your rafters have... Uh, broken, ridgepole broken, rafters destroyed. The mind has gone to the unconditioned, to the unborn, to craving or attachments, cessation, falling away. It has come. I've seen through this game. I've made that shift. He's letting out that lion's roar that says, I'm not, I am not my views and opinions. Whatever views and opinions float through my mind are just views and opinions. They do not belong to anyone that is, uh, that is solid and substantial. And if I build my house on that view and opinion, I will be forever having to protect, defend, uh, build it up more and more and more again. Dukkha is birth again and again in that story. So how does this, how does this actually affect our life when we build our house around views and opinions? I know... During this, during this last many years, because of 
because of the, my own tendency to build a house around certain political, social, religious decisions or religious uh, views, I have suffered a lot in the, with the uh, proliferation of, of uh, misinformation and the lies and the, I, I, I don't want to get into what position I take, but, but I've had a lot of trouble with politicians and politics over the last many years. And I know there are many people in this room, on whatever side you may, may have, uh, what views you identify with. And that's brought a, lot of, brought a lot of suffering. And in fact, it's had the effect when I am not so conscious, when I'm carried along, when I'm reinforcing and building and, and fomenting my, uh, my reactions to the various views and opinions I have, my heart has shut down. I have shut, my heart has shut down. I have gotten, rather than more free and more responsive, and more useful, I've become more useless, more shut, more contracted, more helpless, hopeless, uh, and in these moments anyway. And this is the fruit of being attached to views and opinions. We end up falling into that very narrow vortex of me and mine, and all it becomes all about self-protection. And it all, it all becomes about the reinforcement of the sense of duality, of self and other, and then other becomes, there's the, there's the, um, the other becomes the enemy. So then my mind is, is in a state of conflict. Any of you relate to what I'm saying at all? Any conflicts? Okay. So then when it comes to individuals, it comes to the people in our lives. We tend to, very innocently, when we confront certain people, when we meet certain people in our lives, they hit up their presence, their habits, their, their bodies, their speech, their thoughts. They, just as I was describing in the larger sense in the political arena, individuals often trigger uh, our show us where we have become identified with views and opinions. We see that we like and agree with some people, we don't like others. We, we react with grasping and clinging to some people, and our love tends to be very selective, very sentimental. It's not, it tends not to be so universal. And even though the direction of our practice, the widening of that circle, that widening of our lens, that skylight nature, the widening of our heart is that we also have the capacity to feel a boundless goodwill toward not just the people nearest and dearest to us and the ones who produce the most pleasant feeling in our hearts, but also the ones that, uh, that, that we tend to have some conditioned aversion to. And that becomes possible as we wake up to where we are, wake up to these patterns within ourselves. But often, because certain people trigger, because of our own conditioning, uh, an aversive reaction, a contracted reaction, 
It's very painful to feel and the road less traveled to feel our own contraction, to feel our own pain, to feel our own diminishment, to feel that the house that we've built around how we want the world and other people to be with us has crumbled. We don't want to feel that vulnerable. And so very quickly, and you probably did this 10 times today, I did in different ways, especially in traffic. I didn't do it interpersonally with anybody today, but I have and I do, just ask my wife. But very quickly, rather than feel the, vulner the vulnerability, the pain of, of having been triggered in some way, my mind immediately goes into uh, blaming, judging, evaluating, analyzing. It goes into uh, making the other person, creating the other in my mind, making the other person wrong. And then that other person becomes the enemy. And every time I see that person, they're the enemy. And it's, simplest, it's simple to talk about this. It's another to actually confront this in our own hearts. Another person cannot cause you suffering in this way. What causes us suffering is in the presence of that other person, we shut down. We contract. We get fragile. We get shaky. We get affected. And rather than feel that, we tend to then adopt views about other people and adopt fixed views of other people. I have fixed views of a lot of politicians. And I'm, I try to work with that. I try to imagine them as babies, I try to imagine them. <laughs> suckling on their, their mother's breasts and uh, laughing, just tr anything to break that fixation that I have that they are that way. And I've turned them into this monolith and we do it with even people sitting here in the room. We've turned them into a thing. And that, um, and that is at our own peril. It's, at our, it's, our, it's our own suffering. So the Dharma asks us to come out of the tangle of our views to notice, oh, that's a view that I have of myself. And let that be used on behalf of addressing, coming back to the pain that we may feel and taking some responsibility for the pain we feel around other people. That it's not what they do or say or how they are, but it's in my inability to stay salubrious, cool, flowing, at ease, open-hearted in the presence of that person. And so this is a great opportunity in, in whoever we work with every day, in a sangha, in, a, in, a, um, in our family. Where have you fallen into fixed views about uh, about your partners, about your, your children. I can see my own tendency to, even to my, my little creative fountain, Molly, my seven and a half year old daughter, I can see my, the way my mind wants to turn her into, oh, that's Molly, that's who Molly is. 
But every day, fortunately, because little kids do this for us, she, every day, she surprises me. Every day, something different comes out. And, I, and it almost, it puts me into a state of awe. Could we, is it possible for us to, even with those people in our lives that we have made conclusions about, fallen into that attachment to view and opinion about them, can we look upon them freshly? Can we, and this means that we have to connect. We actually have to connect because the, the connection with somebody, to look into their eyes, to let ourselves feel whatever gets triggered, that's be, that begins to break the, the view, the views. That begins to, to show us that, oh, the idea and the projection of this person in my mind is not that person. And that this person is not reducible to, to this narrow view. So in so many small ways in our lives, in our small relationships, and large ways, in just the way we, we deal with our own mind, the way we deal with each other, the way we deal with, with nature as though it's outside of us, we move from that narrow vortex of views, opinions of me, of self, of our, our small idea to this wider circle of consciousness, of awareness and realize that right in the middle of it all that, 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 our, um, that there is that in us which is, um, that is beyond any view. And it is, this, it is true for everyone in our life too, that they are also beyond any view. There's not one person here that is reducible to a view. And I think first and foremost we have to recognize that in ourselves that is beyond any view. And perhaps then, and also, we can do that with others. So, revisiting as a close the words of David Budbill, which I've shared with you many times in his poem called Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled poet, of a thousand years ago, Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around, never leaving their bowl. I say, that's right, every day climbing back up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over again, around and around, up and back down, sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or... Look around, see your fellow bugs, walk around, say, hey, how you doing? <laughs> say, nice bowl. <laughs> so let's sit quietly. chant the words of Neem Karoli Baba to end. I am like the wind, no one can hold me. I belong to everyone, no one can own me. The whole world is my home, Allah
my family. I live in every heart. I will never leave the old crystal tears. Oh, taking away my fears. May all beings open their minds, open their hearts. Come out of the tangle of fear, thinking of me thinking, live in silence. Through me says, flowing down and down and ever widening rings of being. Practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. May all beings be liberated. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.